Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Robert Clark recently returned from an illustrious FBI career in Los Angeles, now back home in Ohio, specifically to lead the city of Columbus's public safety efforts. Like all other major cities in the US, the past two years has seen a worrying trend of increasing gun violence and homicides in Columbus, undoing a decade plus of hard work in this area. But to Robert, the solution can't be found in simply targeting those metrics alone, or just putting cops on dots. It comes with a broader understanding of what a quality life means, and the deeper social ills that are manifesting in these outcomes. I lost count of the number of times trust and transparency were mentioned, while at the same time, Robert emphasized the uniquely difficult job law enforcement officials have, something that many of us often forget. Please enjoy my conversation with Robert Clark. Columbus is one of the biggest success stories coming out of the Midwest in recent years with a strong ongoing economic growth and a growing cultural scene. With that said, however, the city has not escaped the problems we've seen across the US in the past couple of years around public safety. And the man who's recently come to the city to address this joins us today, Robert Clark. Robert, you've recently returned to the Midwest after a long career away on the West Coast and even abroad. What does the Midwest and I guess Ohio specifically mean to you personally? Let me just start off by saying, Jack, that the Midwest and Ohio specifically means home for me. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, born and raised on the south side of Youngstown. I have always, over the course of my life, and certainly my 36-year law enforcement career, considered myself what I call Steel Valley strong. Youngstown is the Steel Valley of, of Northern Ohio, and I just consider this an opportunity to come home and to serve my home state and certainly serve the community here in Columbus with all of the experience uh, that I've had the opportunity to gather around this great nation and certainly the international opportunities that I've had. So you've had a, a few months in the role now, and as we talked earlier, you'd mentioned that it had been a particularly unique uh, last couple of years around public safety. Do you mind maybe just painting a little bit of a sketch as to the situation you've walked into and maybe some of those one, two, three priorities that you're really focused on addressing in the coming years? Sure. Let me, let me start off by saying that myself, as well as Chief Bryant, as well as her executive team, the, we recognize that we have been through some challenging times. And, and this is across the country, not just here in Columbus, where there's been a diminishing trust and transparency and communication with public safety across the board, uh, you know, across the nation. And we recognize that we have an opportunity to build back better that communication and that trust and that transparency, because we are in an era now where I believe and others believe as well, that you cannot police beyond that which the community understands that which they will accept, and certainly that which they will collaborate with you on. So in order to get that trust and transparency, collaboration, understanding, there has to be an organic engagement with the public. In other words, Chief Brian and myself and a, and a wealth of other public safety professionals, we must be out in the community now shaking hands, attending events, and really understanding the needs of the community. Columbus is very unique, in my opinion, but it's not unlike many other cities in the United States that have suffered from incidents and, and critical incidents where we have missed the mark in public safety. Certainly, we understand what we've just come through the last couple of years, and not just with social unrest, but the pandemic as well. That's been another layer to that 
fracture, if you will. We've just not been able to reach and touch each other and touch and agree. So this is an opportunity for myself as well as Chief Bryant and our executive teams to really put forward uh, the vision and the action orientation, if you will, to be able to touch and agree with our community, understand the needs of our residents, and then be able to deliver those public services in a way that we are building trust, transparency, collaboration, understanding, ultimately reducing violent crime and increasing the quality of life. And in the past couple of years that you've mentioned, Columbus has had record high numbers of homicide, unfortunately. Do you have any sense of what is driving this overall phenomenon? Obviously, Columbus isn't alone and and shootings and homicides have been up across the country, but specifically focusing on Columbus, is there a low-hanging fruit that you've identified to address or Chief Bryant that can begin to quickly stem this tide? Or is it just something a little bit more deeper, more systemic, more longer term? So this goes back to what I've already mentioned to you, and that's the lack of trust and transparency that the community and the police have suffered across the nation. We recognize that we have to build that back better, and we're in the process of doing that. Also, the pandemic, where it caused us to quarantine in our homes, to be isolated from one another, and almost be isolated from the problems. We certainly have to recognize that crime, and certainly violent crime, is a manifestation of a lot of other social ills that exist in our communities. In other words, when we were suffering through the pandemic, individuals were not able to get the mental health um, uh, treatment that they needed, or maybe medications, or adequate educational opportunities, or adequate job opportunities. Individuals were laid off and they stayed home. So these are all layers to that. And what we are seeing now is just a manifestation of all of those things that have come to fruition over the last couple of years. That's why it's so important for us to get back out into our community to touch and agree in a way that we can deliver public safety services in a manner which our residents will understand, they will engage, they will trust, they will communicate. So ultimately, we can reduce violent crime while we're increasing the quality of life. And this is going to require partnerships not just city and governmental partnerships, which are essential, but community-based partnerships, faith-based organizations, community-based organizations, nonprofit organizations, public health organizations, where we can come together and collaborate with our unilateral resources to bring collaboration to the treatment of the endemic issues that really result in the manifestations of crime. And we believe that we can be successful in this because if you look back through history and over time, we can see incidents and eras, if you will, in our country where we have utilized these applications and we have brought a wealth of holistic based resources to communities and reduce violent crime while increasing the quality of life. As you're you're speaking and and talking about the the word vision that's uh, kind of popped up over and over again, both from yourself and, and Chief Bryant. Where does this vision come from? Are there uh, obviously transparency and trust are, are big ones. Are there model agencies or cities that you're looking to as kind of best practice around these? Or is Columbus really looking to chart its own course and with its own unique vision and ambitions for what public safety means between right. the city and the citizens? Yeah, uniquely here in in the year 2022, Chief Bryant coming from the city of Detroit, myself coming from Chicago, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, California, and working both in Central America as well as the Caribbean, we bring a wealth of experience. So we're not looking to recreate the wheel here. We are looking to understand the organic nature of the community and its problems here in Columbus. 
certainly it, it can be said Columbus is not Detroit, Columbus is not Los Angeles, but we have a lot of the same um, problems, certainly violent problems that the both of those cities have, have navigated their way through and policed their way through and serviced their way through. And we are both chief and myself are in a process of assessing what does Columbus need, what applications, what resources, what partnerships, what vision, what collaboration is essential to Columbus because Columbus is unique in and of itself. So because we understand that and, and we also bring that perspective and experience from having worked in other cities who have had a lot of the same problems, some worse, some, some not worse, it, it positions us with experience. It positions us with vision to understand the, the assessment and the analysis phase of really understanding what is going on in Columbus, who are our, our, our force multiplication partners, who can we depend on, who are the cornerstone agencies that we want to work with in a variety of communities around Columbus, and then just applying some of those philosophies, those strategies, those techniques, and certainly technology to decreasing violent crime and improving the quality of life. Fantastic. And you did just touch on the word technology there, which is maybe something we should dig into in a little bit more detail. Um, you'd mentioned the department, police department specifically, moving toward leveraging body-worn cameras. Can you maybe speak behind the motivation there and really just how important that is to begin to bridge that gap between community and, and police? Sure. I think we can witness across the country, probably over the last five to 10 years, if not longer, where departments have recognized the value of having immediate access to transparent information, trusted information, and car cameras and body cameras. Columbus already had body cameras and some car cameras, but now we've undertaken a $20 million project to supply every officer uh, with a body-worn camera, every cruiser with an in-car camera, interview room cameras, license plate readers, so that we can capture information real time to be able to assess what happens out there on the street. More importantly, so that our residents understand that every engagement, and there are, 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 are points where these cameras will be activated, that our residents can trust that everything that happens during their engagements with police officers will be recorded so that we can immediately tell a real and transparent story about what happened out there on the street between our police officers and our residents. And trust me, Jack, when our police officers violate policy or do something that's wrong or illegal, Chief Brian and myself have already stated we will hold them fully accountable, whether that is through departmental directives, public safety directives and discipline, or if it involves criminal charges, we will hold them responsible and accountable. And we've already begun to do that. However, where our officers are performing admirably every single day, saving lives, serving the community, being engaged in the community in a very proactive way and serving the way that our oath speaks to their service and, and raising their right hand and swearing to uphold the law and every single thing that we have trained them to do, we will support them as well. And we will encourage them to continue that process of transparent engagement and service to our residents. I know the uh, the police department is going through a process of, of massive hiring, and it's no secret that policing in general as an occupation has not been extremely pleasant in the past couple of years. Some of it earned, some of it not so earned. As you think about this move toward transparency, are there elements of policing that you feel residents misunderstand or have misaligned expectations that make it maybe more of a difficult job than it ought to be? 
I think there are several aspects, Jack, but let me just share this with you. I'm a, a member of Strategies for Youth, which developed a scientific-based application to really understanding what it means to engage police officers in our youth. And I'll speak about our youth very quickly. There's a study out there called Policing the Teen Brain in a way that teens can understand what is the role and function of police officers. And this is a process to empower them with information. I think what is most misunderstood between police officers and our residents is actually understanding what is the law and what is the correct procedure that police officers should follow. Like, I'll ask you a question very quickly. When does a police officer have to read you your rights? Most people misunderstand that, Jack. If I were to ask you, when should a police officer read you your rights? What would you say? I would say when you're in handcuffs and have officially been arrested. Okay. So that's what most people understand. But factually and constitutionally, that is incorrect. A police officer does not have to read you your rights until you are being interrogated for the crime for which you've been arrested. In other words, a police officer can interview you to get information, and an interrogation is for the collection of evidence. So once a police officer has detention, which means you are not free to leave, and they are questioning you for the crime for which you have been arrested, that is when they must Mirandize you. That is when they must read you your rights. Not before, not on the street, not when you're in handcuffs, not when you're in the back of the car, not when you're standing at the car, only when they are questioning you for the crime for which you have been arrested. And that's that's just a small example of the misunderstanding between our public and our residents and our police officers and what police can and cannot do. So you, and, and zooming out a little bit, you oversee the entirety of public safety for the city of Columbus, and that encompasses both not only the police department, but also the fire department. And traditionally in municipal environments, those are uh, two departments that sometimes are at loggerheads. However, it's obvious from what you've been saying that you're desiring, I guess, greater integration and cooperation between those two departments. What yes. are, what maybe traditionally have been some of the tension points between those two departments, not maybe specifically with, uh, within Columbus, but more generally? And, and what are some of those benefits that you believe the city can can see from integrating them more closely? I think clearly over, over the past, uh, police officers had a certain function and certainly the division of fire and firefighters had a function. And those things sort of unilaterally existed separate from one another. Now we have brought those efforts together, not necessarily in policing and firefighting, but just some joint applications that we are using, uh, particularly our right response unit and police officers and mental health professionals and fire professionals who are working together to assess the calls that come in. Is this a police-related call? Is this a a health-related call, or is this a mental health-related call? And that application allows us to assess the calls coming in, deploy the right resources so that we ultimately have the right engagements. We've already been able to look at some of the preliminary data, and we understand that that has reduced the calls for service for police. It has also, in some instances, reduced the calls for multiple paramedic runs, if you will. And it has also reduced the incidence of use of force because we are now deploying the appropriate mental health professionals 
who can deal with our mental health, our, our residents who are dealing with mental health issues and get them the right engagements, the right programming, the right resources, the right medications if that's what's needed. So it's a, a very unique approach to assessing calls and then deploying personnel out into our communities to making sure our residents get the right resources. Working in a, uh, in a municipal environment, it's impossible to get around the fact that there are between, depending on the location you're in, four and, and 24 elected officials that are tasked with providing strategic direction. As you're going about your day-to-day and, and even thinking kind of long-term on strategic issues, how do you manage to take feedback from what those elected officials are saying who may have valid interactions with the community while also staying true to what you, Chief Bryant, and the rest of the department maybe know intuitively is the right direction to go for public safety? Well, I look at it from a teamwork collaborative approach, Jack, because all of us essentially want the same thing, and that's safety and prosperity for our city, our communities, and our residences. Now, while certainly our elected officials have a role to play and public safety certainly has a role to play, it's important that we come together as a team. We've undertaken probably weekly briefings, if you will, where we talk about specific issues that are certainly important to our elected officials. We take all of that into consideration, but it's also a bilateral exchange of information where we are talking to our elected officials about strategies, about technology, about hiring, about diversification, about prioritizing our efforts in public safety so that we're all on the same sheet of music because we recognize, as I said earlier in our conversation, that we are in an era where it is essential that we are explaining so that our residents understand, they can collaborate, and they can trust what we're saying. And what I mean by that is, is that we all have to be messaging the same message across the board. So when myself, Chief Bryant, or any of our elected officials are out in the communities, we must be speaking the same language. Now, there will be some some nuances and some differences to those applications, I get it. But I'm talking about generally, where we are all speaking in the same direction, working for the same goals, working towards the same goals. And that's why I said to you earlier that our two priorities in public safety is the reduction of violent crime and improving the quality of life. So that's going to take a collaboration because there are many programs and resources that are not owned by public safety. They're not owned by the division of police or fire. They're owned by maybe Department of Neighborhoods or Recreation and Parks or maybe public services. Someone needs sidewalks or or stop signs or whatever the case may be, or fixed sidewalks. That's about collaboration and making sure that we can bring those resources to communities to be able to, to affect that change we want to see in those communities ultimately to reduce violent crime and improve the quality of life. And those things, as simple as they may sound, a stop sign, a a repaired sidewalk, an open park, lights in the park, these are all things that speak ultimately to public safety because we want our residents to feel safe, enjoying the amenities around the city. Yeah, no, I think that's a a well-integrated answer. And, And I guess touching on one of the points you'd made around specifically diversity and hiring, hopefully I assume uh, most of our listeners are, are pretty on board with the importance of hiring for diversity and really the benefits of it. I guess I want to touch on as you're going about doing so, 
on the other side, what are actually some of the main challenges that you've found already and are hoping to address in hiring uh, from a more diverse group of potential employees? Yep. Jack, it's really about messaging. And this is why it's so important to be out in the communities. And this is where the challenge has been because of the pandemic. We have not been able to do that the way we may have done it years in, in the past. So we have to return to that as, as, as long as it's safe and, and as soon as it's safer, we will continue to do that. And messaging how critical of a time this is for those to join public safety. And we are beginning to see an uptick in the numbers. And I'll take you back to um, just post 9-11, because if you don't know, my second day on the Attorney General's protection detail with Mr. John Ashcroft was 9-11. The point I'm going to make is that after the attacks in New York and Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C., we saw record numbers of individuals join our United States military, record numbers, because there was a call to duty, there was a call to action, there was a call to honor. We believe that we are in an era right now that we will begin to see that uptick because of what we've been through the last couple of years with social unrest and all of the other challenges um, that, that we have met that there will be an uptick in recruitment, there will be an uptick of individuals who want to serve their communities and want to be a part of the difference they deserve and demand in their communities. So we anticipate to see an uptick and we're already starting to see that, but it will be more specific because of where we've been and certainly where we're going. Awesome. We've we've obviously chatted a lot about Columbus so far and, and that last answer you touched on your work previously and and I think you've got a fascinating background and maybe let's dive into there a little bit you were in and correct me if I'm wrong you were in the office of the FBI in Los Angeles for a period of time and oversaw something called Project SOS which solved hundreds and hundreds of cold case murders what were do you mind do you mind speaking a little bit about that project and really what were some of the key key ingredients for success from that initiative and and maybe even some of those ingredients that you'll be able to bring over to your work in Columbus. Sure. Happy to, Jack. Thanks. Um, So when I was in Los Angeles, I was the assistant special agent in charge and I was in charge of the FBI's Los Angeles gang program, violent crime, organized crime, crimes against children and drug cartels. And myself and our our FBI team and the team of the Los Angeles Police Department, we decided to put together a cold case homicide unit because we saw a lot of homicides that were being committed in specific neighborhoods, predominantly gang controlled and infested neighborhoods. And we believe that if we brought a certain investigative application to those particular homicides, that we would be able to clear record numbers. Because we recognize that a lot of the same individuals were doing a lot of the shooting. It's the same principle across the country. So it was Operation Save Our Streets. We were able to work in collaboration with the Los Angeles Police Department. And over the course of a six-year period, we were able to clear over 650 cold case investigations that were instrumental to reducing violent crime in Los Angeles. For example, when I got there in 2007, there were probably somewhere in a neighborhood of 300 plus, 350 plus homicides. Now this is not on on record with what happened in the early and mid nineties where Los Angeles had 12 and 1300 murders. So certainly there was a reduction. However, because of Operation Save Our Streets, because we were able to clear a lot of cases, get a lot of, of shooters off of the street, and be able to rise or raise the clearance rate of investigations, we were able to see and realize downwards of 250 
between 250 and 300 homicides for years. And we were able to sustain a dramatic reduction in violent crime in double digits and maintain that for several years. And it's an investigative strategy that involves collaboration. And it involves those investigations that have high solvability factors, things that we need to follow up on. And we're in the process of envisioning something here in Columbus that will be similar to what we did in Los Angeles. There's a homicide pilot that we're working on right now. There's some other um, strategies that myself and, and the chief and her executive team are working on. Uh, they just came out of an executive retreat where they talked about a wealth of strategies that they want to develop, uh, certainly here in the next several months. So it will be just one of the applications that we apply here in Columbus and really understanding, this is what I said earlier, it's essential that we understand our residents and our communities and what the needs are, not just in the division of police, but in our communities and for our residents specifically. So we bring the right kinds of strategies, the right kind of personnel, the right kinds of technology, and ultimately the right kinds of results. And that's the reduction of violent crime and improving the quality of life. Fantastic. And the previous guest that we had on the podcast was Chief Brennan Del Pozo, formerly Chief of Burlington, Vermont. And one of the questions that he answered, and actually he said that this was one of his main metrics when he's hiring potential police chiefs was, what are those metrics of success in policing being more traditional around crime rates and and clearance rates? And you've touched on the reduction of violent crime being a significant one. Thinking beyond that, are there any key metrics that maybe are a little bit non-traditional or unorthodox that you believe public safety folks should be measuring that they maybe are currently Um, not indexing strongly enough? Yes. So we're beginning to assess these things here in Columbus, Jack, to be quite honest with you. But let me just kind of build this for you. As you can imagine, the FBI is very big on matrix. We even have special colors for matrix. Um, So we're very big on numbers. But I took it one step further. And here's the example that I would use to you. A mother who's just lost her 15-year-old son to gun violence is not going to care that gun violence in her city or her community has been reduced by 25%. You understand what I'm saying? So because of that, I took it a step further. Yes, you can come in and tell me that that violent crime is down or these particular crimes are down or whatever the case may be, but what has been the impact to that? In other words, the quality of life issues that are specific to our, our neighborhoods, our communities, and for our residents, have we increased the quality of life? Have we made impact? And what does that look like? It, it looks like this. Can our children play in their front yard safely without fear of drive-by shootings? Can they go back to the playgrounds and community centers and rec centers and enjoy those facilities without fear? Can they walk to school without being bullied or jumped by gang members or forced into gangs or forced to sell drugs or forced to carry weapons to school? Have we had that sort of impact in raising the quality of life? Because those are the things that are essential to reducing violent crime. We may be able to reduce occurrences of crime or incidents of crime for a specific period of time, but that will not speak quantitatively or qualitatively, have we improved the quality of life? Is it safer? Do residents feel safer? Do we have the right kinds of streetlights, the playgrounds, and access to facilities so that individuals feel 
connected to their communities. They feel connected to their, their neighbors. They're watching out for each other. We restore a sense of community. And that is what will ultimately reduce crime, not just initiatives, not just the arresting a bunch of people, because I come out of the era in the early 90s and mid 90s of arresting everyone who was standing on street corners and drug houses and sent a lot of people to prison, we recognized that that was not an effective impact application because ultimately what impact did it have on the quality of life? That's why we're revisioning it now in 2022 to understand that those investigative and, and law enforcement operations are still necessary because there's individuals that have to be removed from the community because of their violence and because of the danger that they pose. But then you just can't leave. you got to build into that community those essential services and engagements and programming and strategies that improve the quality of life. So you bring back this sense of community, collaboration, accounting for one another, looking out for one another, helping one another, and restoring that sense of community. I, uh, I think that's a pretty remarkable answer. So I guess by way of background, my day job is, is working with police departments and specifically helping them measure public, or I guess the, the sense of trust and safety within the community. And we've come to recognize that community trust is of equal importance as you know, things like crime and clearance rates. When demonstrations against police agencies occur, it's never due to an increase in crime or a decrease in clearance rates, to your point. It's always a little bit, always something a little bit more intangible, um, more sentimental. So totally agree. We're on the same page around having to address that beyond just putting cops on dots, so to say. Sure. The, as the, you know what happens when you put cops on dots, right? Tell me. The dots move. Just move. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. I haven't heard that one, but it, it, it makes total yeah. sense. And, and because you have not cured the problem, you've only suppressed the problem. And this is why mm -hmm. I'm saying all of all of most of the crime that we experience is just manifestation of other social problems and social ills. That's why we have to treat those those endemic problems in communities, whether it's mentoring programs or mental health programs or trauma-based programs or child-based programs or parenting-based programs. And I could go on and on and on. When I was in Los Angeles, I had partnerships with over 100 and di 180 different agencies who brought that programming to the communities that we were focusing on, that we conducted operations, arrested who needed arrested, but immediately went back into those communities and brought those programmings, brought that programming and brought those services. One of those, those communities is Lower Baldwin Village, which is where Denzel Washington filled training day. So everyone is very familiar with that area. They understand what it was, but because we brought that application and that theory to that particular neighborhood, we were able to certainly arrest those that needed to be arrested, but revitalize that community to now there's condos and coffee shops and sandwich shops and theaters. And it looks like anywhere else you could go in, in your suburban travels. And that is in Lower Baldwin Village. We no longer refer to it as the jungle, which is what it was referred to as years ago. Fantastic. So I was actually originally going to ask you as a closing question, an accepted truth of policing you think is incorrect, but throughout the conversation, I've realized that you have a much more broader conception of city health and, and resident well-being than, than solely policing and public safety. So I guess I'll, I'll change the question and maybe just ask, what's one accepted truth of local government in general that you think is incorrect? That we don't care. 
Um, it's important for our residents to understand that while government is big, whether it's at the local level or the federal level, uh, that we do care. There are, are women and men who come to work every single day to work very hard to utilize the resources that we are entrusted with to deliver those services that have the most impact in our communities and for our residents. Because this is what I say, Jack, the presence of money does not guarantee success, but the absence of money does not guarantee failure. It really comes down to how you're partnering, how you're communicating, how transparent you are, how engaged you are, how organic you are, and building those relationships from simply touching and agreeing. Again, yes, we can be out there as government officials. I can be out there as the director of public safety and have very hard conversations because residents are, are angry. They don't understand. They, they want something. They need something. And I need to be the one who is their sounding board and, and, and receive that and then figure out how within the structure of public safety or the structure of other city government departments that we can deliver some resolution to those particular issues. And I'll give you a perfect example. We were at a park several months ago. We were going to have a community walk, but this is when the time changed. It got dark. There were no lights in the park. So we talked about, hey, we need to bring lights to the park. That's not a Department of Public Safety issue, but it's certainly something for Rec and Park. It's certainly something for public services. And I know that they're working on revitalizing those areas and, and providing those types of resources simply so that residents feel safer, they feel more engaged, they feel like they are a part of not just the conversation, but the solutions. Robert, I think you've painted both a, an extremely thoughtful and aspirational picture for the future of Columbus, one focused on relationships, trust, and transparency. And it's obvious there's a, a lot of work to do, but with this laser focus and collaborative mindset, uh, no doubt we'll be seeing an extremely different Columbus in the years to come. So yeah, really appreciate your your time um, this morning and, and best wishes uh, for the coming years. Jack, I appreciate the opportunity to share with you, but let me also remind you that while I may be the director, this is really a collaborative team effort. And I don't want you or anyone else to forget the women and men who do this very difficult work every single day, the women and men who are working around the clock, doing the right things, putting themselves in harm, serving our community, and literally living out their oath and what their badge means that hangs on their chest, then that they are there to serve and protect. So I want to make sure that they get the shout out on this because they're doing a phenomenal job and we encourage them to continue and we'll support them in every way that we can. Amen. Fantastic way to end. Thanks again. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.